Wiser podcast. Conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research. Hi, I'm Sizwe Mbofu-Walsh, postdoctoral fellow at Wiser, and welcome to the Wiser podcast. Sean Lavery is lecturer in the Department of English at the University of Pretoria and researcher on the Oceanic Humanities for the Global South Project, based at WISER. In this podcast, she curates a series of voices, which she will shortly introduce, on international writing about water. Climate change is compelling us all to turn to water. As the upcoming International Panel on Climate Change reports, water will very soon be either in too short supply or in overabundance, in storms and floods or droughts and fires. In literary cultures too, waters are inevitably rising and coming closer, both materialising a dark future, but also signalling new socio-ecological intimacies and potential. This podcast introduces a special issue of the journal Wasafiri, edited by me, Sean Lavery, and Southampton-based scholar Stephanie Jones, on water and international writing. The issue emerged out of the first meeting of the Oceanic Humanities for the Global South Network, which is held in a small seminar room on the top floor of a 70s-style hotel on the Durban beachfront, its windows filled with the blue of the Indian Ocean. The workshop brought together scholars from South Africa, Mozambique, India, Mauritius and Barbados, and inspired this even more um, internationally wide-ranging issue, which includes contributors from all those places, as well as Fiji, Florida, Somalia, Switzerland, Mexico, and Antarctica. International Waters, International Writing. This podcast introduces the breadth and richness of the special issue. Wasafiri is a journal of contemporary international writing, and is a mix of criticism, creative writing, life writing, interviews, and reviews. Jackie Kosge, a wiser and oceanic humanities postdoctoral fellow, samples a section of oral poetry from the Kenyan coast by the Digo poet Bahati, and explains how she records these oral forms and discovers indigenous marine conservation knowledges. Asma Syed reviews the recently published Isikosa travelogue about traveling around India in the early 20th century, and she reviews that from the perspective of India today. The book, DDT Jabavu's book, Travels in India and East Africa, is an unusual example of black travel writing, as she describes, because it's not in a north-south direction, as would be more familiar, but looks eastward across the Indian Ocean. Hedy Twidal reads from Barbarian Phase, a piece of life writing about learning to surf in middle age in Cape Town. His title riffs off of that of William Finnegan's Barbarian Days, the Pulitzer Prize-winning surf memoir. Twidal picks up on the fact that Finnegan spent some months teaching at a township high school in Cape Town during the 1980s and describes what surfing now is like at the edge of the African continent and at something like the end of the world. Finally, Betsy Knees from the University of North Florida in Jacksonville describes her review essay on a rise in post-colonial novels about mermaids. And this is in light of her former work on transatlantic mermaids and what they say about our political and ecological present. Yes, you 
nikikize nikauli muzibadili tabia Moishi kama awali kule mulikotokea Kwa maana jambo hili la kera linaudhia Shamba mwalitia moto kesho mwenda vuna wapi Kwajaisha kujinadi bahari kujiringia yale usika majadi yenu munaichafua funguzeni ukaidi twenda kotwa jaumia shamba mwalitia moto That is the musical voice of Bahati Ngazi as she performs a Swahili oral poem on marine conservation, one of the many topics she addresses in the hundreds of poems she has composed over the years. My first encounter with Swahili oral poetry, and that is also the first time I met with Bahati Ngazi, was in 2016. At the time, I was an MA student. When in 2018 I embarked on my PhD research on local experiences of the sea on the Kenyan coast I instantly thought of working with Bahati because I had previously sampled her poetry and had found it to be infused with unique coastal sensibilities I also met a sailor and a diving fisherman both of whom I interviewed alongside Bahati All three come from the Digo community belonging to the larger Majikenda group on the Kenyan coast From interviews that I held with these three I deduced multiple dimensions of the sea. Of interest are two interconnected dimensions, the spiritual and the ecological. In a nutshell, the Digo believe that sea spirits are the protectors and guardians of the sea, and so they conserve the ocean not just because it provides for them, but also because it is where the sea spirits that they revere live. For this paper on marine conservation, I used two of eight poems that I recorded with Bahati. One of the poems, a test of which we just had, is titled Shamba Mwalitia Moto which translates to you set the farmer blaze in this poem and as the title suggests Bahati likens the sea to a farm this imagery works in two ways it reminds coastal people that their present actions towards the sea will directly impact on the ability of the ocean to cater for their future needs it also allows people from the hinterland to understand the critical role that the ocean plays in the lives of the shore folk which is important because conserving the ocean is not the responsibility of coastal communities alone those on the hinterland also have a role to play most of the other poems that bahati performed focus on the spiritual dimension of the sea which i am currently working on and so i will engage with these other poems further in the future Travel writing as a genre is multifaceted in that it allows a writer to present both individual stories and historical accounts. Over the last few decades, many postcolonial authors have used travelogues to present different notions of the homeland and alternate readings of history. Travel allows these authors to engage with the world that they see, as well as to identify themselves in ways they had not thought about before. Nonetheless, the canon of travel writing has historically privileged white voices or anglophone voices. 
Thus, black, indigenous, and people of color have not always had their voices represented, especially when they write in non-dominant languages. It is important that scholars of literary studies not only pay more attention to works in regional languages, but also bring these works on the global level by translating them. Didi Chijabao's book, In India and East Africa, a travelogue in Ishikusha and English, is one such work. Chijabao was a South African campaigner, writer, editor, and a professor of African languages and Latin at the University of Fort Hare in South Africa. His travelogue was first published in 1951. It covers his four-month trip with his friend Manilal Gandhi, one of the sons of Mahatma Gandhi, to attend the 1949 World Pacifist Meeting in India, traveling from South Africa to India via East Africa. Rajabu's narrative provides readers with a new vantage point from which to reconsider the cultural and political landscape of India, South Africa, and East Africa in particular, but also the Indian Ocean region in general. When I read the book, many questions came to my mind, and I want to share some thoughts with you. Now, one question that has steered my research lately is posed by Gaurav Desai in his book, Commerce with the Universe, Africa, India, Afrasian Imagination. Desai asks, what happens to our understanding of Africa, its history, its sense of identity, its engagement with modernity, and the possibilities of its future if we read its long history as an encounter not only with the West, but also with the East? Interesting question. Chabo's book is especially interesting for me because it focuses on India, but it is a voice of a non-Indian observer and thus provides a perspective of, which is different from somebody who has direct ties with India. And now here I am reminded of the work of African-Indian-Canadian author M.G. Vasanji, uh, whose works has, have been a focus of my research. One of the travelogues that I enjoyed thoroughly is Vasanji's A Place Within Rediscovering India. This travelogue covers Vasanji's multiple visits to India from 1993 to 2003. The book recounts Vasanji's India travels mostly on trains and buses from Delhi and Shimla in the north to Kanyakumari in the south to Calcutta in the east and to the western province of Gujarat, his ancestral homeland. Now, this travel memoir captures Vasanji's personal story while simultaneously providing an account of India's history, a complicated web of myths, folklore, religious tensions, and particularly significant episodes of communal harmony and discord, all woven into India's colonial past and postcolonial presence. The travel, in a sense, is Vasanji's attempt to reclaim what he calls ancestral mythical memory of India and to understand India, which he says he finds at once so startlingly familiar and yet so alien, so frustrating and yet so enlightening and humbling, so warm and friendly and yet so inhumanly cruel and callous. There is so much trade activity, cultural exchange, and social interaction between India and African countries, and there are so many stories that accompany these interactions. But not all are available to us at times because 
Eastern voices have not been centered enough or because those narratives were written in regional languages and have not been translated into some of the hegemonic languages. Think about this. We know so much about the West and its dealings with the East. The colonial project has led us to think about these encounters which are also mostly written by Westerners. But we also need to think about the other side of the story, that is the dealings of the East with the East. The two works that I just mentioned intertwine in interesting ways. Chabot's work also situates East-to-East -East relationships and prompts us to think about India's relationship with African nations. Similarly, Vasanji's travelogue furthers our understanding of the travel across the Indian Ocean. These works by two men from two different countries, two different times, and written in different languages bring to us the stories of crossings across the Indian Ocean. As I slowly improved, very slowly, and not without major relapses, I also began trying out the occasional bit of surf lingo and surf auteur, which is full of mockery poked at beginners and laments about crowds and tourists. But to disparage tourists while being a tourist, or traffic when you were traffic, or crowded breaks when you were part of the crowd, this was, Coach had once pronounced, the way of the barbarian. The remark was not directly related to Finnegan's book, but somehow got tangled up in my reading of it. Spending a lifetime searching out the greatest breaks in the world, and then writing about it, and then winning a Pulitzer for it, Finnegan has to reckon with the paradox at the heart of surf culture, that the mythic quest for the perfect uncrowded wave inevitably contains, when photographed or written or bragged about, the seeds of its own downfall surf tourism. As a young man, he is one of the first to surf a paradisal reef break on a remote island of Fiji. Towards the end of the book, he returns to the region, now a surf lodge full of social media streams and spectator boats. Finnegan is wonderfully ambivalent about the world he describes. He doesn't even seem sure if he likes surfers or surf culture. Living and paddling out along San Francisco's forbidding ocean beach he is steadily writing about other things, finishing his books on 19, 1980s Cape Town and travels with black reporters in Soweto, still feeling mentally flayed by his time in the country. To write about surfing was something different and closer to home, he said. It risked losing that sizable tract of unconsciousness near the center of his life. The self-enclosed, non-verbal quality which means that most surf lineups are quiet, with everyone cocooned in their own space and silence, not places for the loud or garrulous. Stacked, stacked five deep in my local surf shop, Barbarian Days must itself have been directly responsible for unleashing droves of bookish middle-aged groms like me on the already crowded lineups of the English-speaking world. And it is, of course, within the surf shop that such contradictions reach a particular intensity, since they are run by locals who are resentfully kitting out kooks from the Hawaiian kook, meaning shit. The proprietor was clearly not amped to be selling me a wetsuit, given that it might enable me to ruin his wave later that day. Your arms are thin all the way up to the shoulders, so this one isn't tight enough. 
I soon realised that it was a broad-based misanthropy, though, nothing personal. When another customer walked in, they soon established they were both from Durban, where all you needed was boardies and at worst a rashy. The shop owner began a litany of complaints. It's shit in Cape Town. First, it's cuck cold. Then you have to drive everywhere. It's always a mission. In summer, it's the wind. In winter, it's too big. I've got ear infections, bro. Three operations now. In Derbs, you just stroll on over. But Glen Beach, said a punter, that's nearby. It's a cuck wave. Eavesdropping on this, I felt a little hurt on Glen's behalf, even though I could barely surf it. Those sandbars move around. Then there's all that churned up kelp, all those little bits. And the stream running in there, disgusting. All the shit they pump out there, no man, it's a cuck wave, literally. Drone footage shot by concerned ratepayers had shown plumes of raw sewage being released just off the city's most expensive beaches, just a few hundred meters away from the bungalow mansions and anchored party boats. According to a recent scientific study, Kalk Bay snook were full of ibuprofen and Heart Bay and enemies packed with Vermox. Sea urchins of Sea Point were showing high levels of anti-anxiety and heart meds, just some of the many drugs that filtered daily through bladders and pipes and then out to sea. Every sea creature was full of caffeine, apparently, and probably cocaine too. What must that be like? And several of the desalination plants meant to rescue us from drought couldn't run. On the Atlantic coast, the water in the docks was too polluted. On the Indian Ocean side, the problem was algal blooms and red tides. Despite knowing all this, I somehow still retained my idea of seawater as a healthy, bracing, salty tonic, right up until the session when Alex brushed his foot against a rock in Glen and walked out with an inflamed toe, so angry it was squeaking. Only swift medical action saved the digit, or even the foot. The staph infection required hospitalization, and he was on crutches for a while. After Glento, he was more ready to dial things down a little, and we began leading surf outings for the kids from Philippi and Marcus Garvey. We would wade out into the shallows with two or three shrieking, terrified, delighted children attached to us and try to stand them on a foam board, while also scanning obsessively to make sure that none of the others were being dragged out or under. Often we had to cut our sessions short because one of the assistant teachers would find us and say that people were throwing stones at Golden Arrow buses on Eisleben Road or the tires were burning near the school gate and it looked like it might get worse, so we should go now. I half suspected they were just bored waiting on the shore, but we would then drag everyone out of the water and the wetsuits and back on the bus. Then we might paddle out to the back line for our own session and the quiet and self-enclosure would return. Thinking back to that melee with the kids in the white water, touch and go at times, I realised I'd never been clutched so hard by anyone. La Serena, Mamiwata, Imaya, goddesses of the ocean. These mere beings have surfaced in literature for children and adults to call us out for something more than a bargain or a siren song. They provide a platform to challenge us to think about what we have done to generations past and where we might be going. In the age of racial protest and globalization, we may need to look back to go forward. Or so writers for children and adults who include mere beings in their work seem to think 
Take, for example, the role of sea spirits in the field of Caribbean children's literature. Grenadian Richardo Keynes Douglas, Freedom Child of the Sea, illustrated by Julia Kukova. An Afro-Caribbean boy with scars covering his tiny back rescues a drowning man. The spirit child who lives under the sea was born of a mother who was tossed overboard during the slave trade. It can only return to land when young readers learn to live together. In the Jumbie series that opens with the 2015 book, The Jumbies, Trinidadian American Tracy Baptiste relies on mermaids and Mama DeLoe to teach readers about the Middle Passage. Her mermaids carry the young protagonist against the sea to Africa, passing skeletons chained, chained to a slave ship's beams rotting on the ocean floor. In addition to engaging in transatlantic histories, can such mer-beings also help young readers think about caring for the ocean? Kara Sowen, St. Martin writer Loki Morales, in her 2008 book, Mina Marina, features a mermaid and a merman who meet between the waters of Curacao and Venezuela to teach young children to keep the ocean clean. Amidst worldwide outcries for racial justice and protests against climate change, fiction writers, even those writing for adults, turn to mirror beings to promote social and ecological change. For example, reviewed in this issue, U.S.-British-based author River Solomon in 2019 novel The Deep turns to mere beings to imagine what would happen if pregnant women thrown overboard during the Middle Passage gave birth to a new species who could live underwater. The author rides the waves of Afrofuturism to think about how we can undo cycles of domination. Is it embedded in our gender relationships or sexual orientation? What would happen if we all had multiple and non-oppositional sexual parts, or if we could even mate across species? Solomon uses such fare to think about why we recycle patterns of oppression. Cape Tonian Lytton Francois Berger turns to the Inuit mythology of Sedna, mother of the sea, combined with a contemporary romance plot to raise our environmental awareness in his 2020 novel, She Down There. A marine biologist by trade, Berger has made it his life mission to protect the sea. His mixed indigenous French-Canadian protagonist, Claire Lutrisquet, escapes her controlling white lover to hook up with a South African diver, Klaus Afrikaner, to break up an illegal fin trade and support oceanic research in Mozambique. As an underwater photographer, Berger lights up his love affair with the sea, not unlike Craig Foster in his mesmerizing 2020 film, My Octopus Teacher, both cast the same reverent glow towards all things oceanic. You'll need a beach chair for this long but breathtaking story. A third novel, Monique Rafi's The Mermaid of Black Conch, published in 2020, rides this postcolonial wave. A Trinidadian, by birth, Rafi turns to the indigenous mythology of the Caribbean Taino, which includes the story of 
the mermaid Achaia, who's been cursed by a jealous band of women to live in isolation forever. Here, you will not find the white slavers of Solomon's The Deep or people like Claire's late fiance interested in a claim for his ecological work and she down there. Instead, you'll find a ready-faced U.S. fisherman who has come to the Caribbean for a tournament. He catches a Achaia hook piercing her throat. She's worth a lot of money, he figures, potentially from a museum, echoing the history of capturing and killing indigenous people. Thankfully, a lonely dreadlocked islander named David Baptiste finds her and takes her down off the hook before it's too late. You toss in a white creole-speaking woman and her dark-skinned lover life, you've got human vulnerability and love percolating in this interracial, interspecies romance. Maybe we should consider saving the planet we live on and embrace our shared worth. In the process, we might learn to love someone or some being so that the shackles of hierarchy crumble in the dust. <laughs>